Welcome aboard the Pilot's Paradise Podcast. Join us as we explore the skies with daring, skilled, and often hilarious pilots and aviation enthusiasts in Idaho. From soaring over majestic mountains to braving unpredictable weather and pushing the limits in supersonic military jets, get behind-the-scenes insights into the thrills and excitement of every flight. If you love airplanes and adventure, then tune in every Friday because the Pilot's Paradise podcast is for you. Buckle your seatbelts and adjust your tray tables because we're about to take off on another adventure. Hey, Bo Miller. Welcome to the Pilot's Paradise podcast. Great to have you on today. Thanks for having me. Yeah, really excited to talk to you today. I think it's going to be a great conversation. For everyone's knowledge, Bo and I did uh, serve in the Air Force together. We flew U-2s together out at Beale Air Force Base. And before we hit the recording, we were actually talking about one flight that we had. I think it's the only time we ever flew together, specifically in a in a T-38. But we'll get into that a little bit later. Bo, super, uh, super excited to, to have you on the show. And I just kind of want to highlight another pilot in Idaho that's out doing some really fun, crazy things. And so let's just start with you. Just tell us a little bit about yourself. I grew up in uh, Northern California near Yosemite in the Tuolumne County. Grew up there my whole life and then uh, left there, went to the Air Force Academy, did that for four years. And then I went to pilot training. And when I finished pilot training, I got the lucky privilege of staying in Oklahoma <laughs> as a T-37 instructor pilot. We like to... Fun. Fun times. First assignment instructor pilot. Yeah. So I did that for... So I was there for about four years total flying T-37s. I had flown T-38s as a student. So I had a fighter follow-on. So at the end of the my tour there, you have a drop sort of like in pilot training. And I really wanted to fly the A-10 but I ended up with the F-16, which seems kind of silly to be sad about that. But um, at the time, I just really wanted the A-10. So, But I went to the F-16 and uh, maybe a little apprehension about that because the stories of all the Gs you have to pull and yeah, I'm getting into that. But went to Luke and uh, it went made it through training there. And then I spent a year in South Korea at Kusan Air Base, okay. the 80th Fighter Squadron, then ended up at Hill Air Force Base in Utah flying there. I did uh, one Iraq deployment while I was there. And then uh, my time at, in the F-16 was coming to an end. It was kind of a weird time in fighter pilot manning at that point. That's when I decided that I wanted to switch out of the fighter world and I applied for the U-2 program. Being from C- California, that was kind of appealing to me to be close to my parents and also yeah. to be fly single pilot and just the uniqueness of it. And then I think everybody has a connection, but I, you know, met Huggy at an air show. And so he kind of <laughs> got my juices flowing and thinking about doing that. So I ended up at Beale in the U-2, did that for five years. I was an instructor pilot in the U-2 and the T-38 there. In 2014, the Air Force was looking to get rid of people. So I volunteered and applied for the early retirement program. And that's a whole nother story in itself. But uh, I got the early retirement and... Then I was kind of like, what am I going to do with my life? And everybody, you know, 99% of people and that pilots in the Air Force go to the airlines, but I'm a little oddball. So I, growing up in where I did, there was a CDF, what we call it at the time, the California Department of Forestry um, air attack base at Columbia Airport. And I always seen the tankers and, and the spotter planes flying over. And so I just uh, decided to try fire. And I talked to my wife and I was like, hey, I want to try this for a couple of years, see if I can make a go at it. And we kind of just picked up and moved to Idaho because this is where I got a job. 
kind of took off from there. And so I've been flying fire since the summer of 2014 now, three years with a federal contractor, and then the last six years with the state of California, basically flying for okay. Cal Fire. Okay. So and you so, live in Idaho here. Where where do you live in Idaho? Yeah, I, so I live in Pocatello, southeast Idaho. Okay. I've um, been here since 2014. That's where we kind of settled after I got the job flying and we just kind of liked it here. So we stayed here. My wife's from Wyoming, so it's kind of close to her family. And I don't know, it's just a really nice area and we've enjoyed it. So when you got a job in Idaho flying, what were you doing then? I worked for a company called the Av Center here in Pocatello. They also have a, a location in Nampa at the time they did too. So anyway, and I, I got on as a air attack pilot, which is fire code for the spotter plane or the technical term would be like the aerial supervision platform where you're you're kind of controlling the airspace around the fire, keeping everybody safe and like giving you're kind of the eyes in the sky for the incident commander on the ground. Is that a one person crew or was it multi people on that crew? As a pilot, I'm just I'm just flying the aircraft. I'm okay. kind of a glorified taxi driver. I mean there's a lot more to it, but you're you're there to get the airplane in the position for the other crew member who we call just the colloquial, I guess, is would be the air attack. But okay. their technical definition is an air tactical group supervisor, an ATGS. That's their like qualification level. And so those guys are experienced fire captains or battalion chiefs or division commander uh, commanders who have been doing fire for years and years on the ground. And it's just uh, somebody that's interested in aviation and helping out. They kind of direct everything. We usually have like five or six radios and they're talking the aircraft. They're talking to dispatch. They're talking to the firefighters on the ground, controlling the helicopters, all that stuff. So as a pilot, your job is to put them in a position where they can do their job the most effective. So on a small fire, it's not too hard because you're just kind of orbiting it. But as a fire gets larger, they break it up into divisions and section, you know, different sections. And so you're listening to what's going on, what they're talking. So, hey, you know, oh, I need to call division Charlie. So you're like, oh, I know where Charlie is. So I'm going to go over to, that might be five miles away. So you start flying over there, kind of thinking ahead of the of them or, you know, like you're kind of mind melding with them a little bit. That's what a good air attack pilot will do. Yeah. I'll try to do. The pilot also deals with any airspace or other air traffic, you know, besides stuff in the fire traffic area. So if you're near, you know, Class Charlie or Delta Airport, um, you might be talking to the tower or any of that kind of stuff. Keeping people away from the incident if you can. In the fire season, these little red circles pop up on our charts. What do you want pilots to know about about those when you guys are trying to do your job? Just to avoid them. Yeah. <laughs> and then also think about the routes to and from other airports, like say, you know, Boise. Okay. Say there's a fire north of Boise in the forest. Well, there's going to be traffic from that TFR or incident between Boise airport and the fire. Okay. That's where all the air tankers are going to go back and forth. So there's going to be heavy traffic in that area. Or if there's a heli base set up somewhere, you're going to have a lot. Of, so just thinking about the traffic that's involved with that. Yeah. A lot of times on a, when an incident initially starts, there's not going to be a TFR. That might take several hours. So if you see a large smoke column, just probably avoid it by about five miles. That's our normal fire traffic area is a five mile okay. circle around the incident. So 
I think that's important for people to know. I mean, we uh, we see the TFRs pop up, and you know, there you can see there's a fire over there, so you wonder what's going on. But just to know that there are uh, there could be a buzzsaw of activity in that area, right? And to it's fight tactical the fire. tactical flying going on, so people are have split attention. You know, we're not when I'm going to a fire, I'm I might be I'm listening to those frequencies and trying to get my SA built up going into an incident. So I'm not in a hundred percent cruise mode. Like I would be if I was yeah. just going point A to point B, try to balance all that. I mean, we're, we're doing our best to be safe. We're not ignoring it, but it's just, you got a lot on, a lot on your plate. Yeah. Well, uh, what got you started in aviation? Where did you get the bug? Probably a couple things. I discussed being near a CDF tanker base, you know, in the movie um, empire of the sun, right. Where Christian Bale's in the POW camp and the Mustang <laughs> flies by and he's like, yeah. you know, kind of like of the sky. Anyway, I would uh, go run outside every time I'd hear the S twos. Cause they had the old radial engines on them and he'd just run outside and wave to the pilots, you know? And we had, we had a really large complex fire near my house in 1987 when I was in fourth grade. And, uh, we got kind of on a pre-evacuation order, but we had a fire engine in our house. And then just south of the house was maybe one of the tanker orbits. And there's just all the old school oh. tankers, you know, like all the DC four through seven series, the maybe even a B-17, the PB-4Ys, all the old stuff that, that people are nostalgic about. I think that really got me my aviation interest flowing. And then also right after that was the Gulf War hit. I just remember I had like a whole scrapbook of clippings because they had um, they put like all the different weapon systems in the newspaper, just a description. Yeah. And so I clipped them all out. And so I got really into that and I got really into building model airplanes. And so I just was all about aviation at that point. Yeah. I didn't I didn't necessarily have a, a goal of what I wanted to do as far as a specific thing. But I'd say that was my inspiration. Yeah, it's, I think we all get the bug in a different way, and that's a very unique way is to see the fire operators flying. Did you see the movie Always? Oh, yeah. Yeah, yeah. several times I've seen it. I remember I remember seeing that when it came out, I think early or late 80s, I think. Yeah. And, yeah, uh, it would have been about that time frame, too. That's the first time I, I saw the fire bombers or fire attack aircraft, and I was like, oh, man, right. that's so cool. So cool. That looks intense. Yeah. But we'll get we'll get to the fire stuff in a minute. But Sure. T-37 FAPE, what did you like about that? So FAPE, first assignment instructor pilot for, for people that are not military, just when you get out of pilot training, they uh, retain some new graduates to stay around and uh, go through an instructor course and then become instructors. What did you like about that? I'm going to go back just a little bit on that. Yeah. I, w- I flew gliders while I was at the Air Force Academy. Oh, good. Okay. As an instructor pilot. Very good. So I had kind of a little bit of a background in being a flight instructor, I guess. So that kind of just is a setup to this. Yeah. But yeah, I mean, it was, you know, a lot of people say a bad deal. I was not super excited about it. Most FAPES are not super excited about sticking around. Right. You know, looking back on it, I had a real a blast. Like that's one of those times, you know, in your career, you have, have like specific mo- moments where like for a period, it just was like everything was awesome. And I just remember my flight there. I just had a great time with the people I was with. And honestly, it set me up very well for uh, future flying. I just, I was young and kind of raw and I learned a lot there. Teaching, I think anytime you teach people, you learn, you learn a lot about yourself and a lot more in depth. Yeah. 
Then you went to F-16. Tell me about flying F-16 for the first time. What was that like? Well, having flown T-37s, which were not very like expensive airplanes, getting into a $20 million fighter <laughs> and uh, getting a ticket solo, I was kind of like, felt like I was stealing a little bit, you know, like, <laughs> you know, the old yeah. fighter pilots prayer, you know, please, Lord, don't let me screw this up. Yeah. So, but yeah, I love that. I loved being a fighter pilot and the mission. I always felt like the air to ground mission was where I wanted to be. So fortunately, you know, in the F-16 at that point, this is 2004, you know, the Iraq war was really heating up. So that was our primary focus in that airframe at the time. So I got to do a lot of, uh, a lot of air to ground and flying an airplane where you feel like you can do whatever you want and not hurt it or yourself. I mean, I guess you could hurt yourself by pulling too many G's, but yeah, you know, you fly a Cessna around and you're like, oh, I don't want to, can't dive too fast or, you know, any of this stuff. And F-16, you just, you can do whatever you want. So how did your experience uh, flying F-16s prepare you for what you do now with fire attack? I'd say it was a pretty big advantage to what I'm doing now because you get into a tactical mindset. You got multiple frequencies. You're talking to people on the ground. And then the biggest thing for us is like seeing uh, something on the ground, like a uh, in that world, it was a uh, troops in contact or a battlefield. In this in this sense, it's a fire. But you're looking at that and learning how to listen to other people describe it or describe it yourself, so you can be precise about the location of either weapons employment or or retardant. I guess. Yeah. So just that tactical mindset of a lot going on. You're just always thinking ahead of everything rather than just um, instead of everything being planned out, it's all kind of a pickup game. So, yeah, good. I'm sure there are a lot of parallels to what you're doing now. Had to be good, good lead in for that experience. But then you went from F-16 to U-2s. That's where you and I met each other. You mentioned Huggy, John Huggins. It's amazing how many people in aviation know Huggy. If he ever listens to this episode, (laughs) it's like, hey, brother, right? He did introduce me to Sue, who is the very first guest on this podcast. She's out at the Warhawk Museum in Nampa. So I do appreciate him making that introduction. But so Huggy, all of us know Huggy. He kind of sucked you into the black world of the U-2. I am interested in what you thought about your very first interview flight in the U-2. Yeah. Coming from an F-16. And I kind of got a lot of sideways glances in that community when I was, you know, told people I was going out for an interview and like, what? Huh? They're like, you're going to the B-2? What? What's going on? <laughs> they were, it was just kind of confusing. But coming from an, okay, an F-16, side stick controller, fly-by-wire, the stick doesn't really move. You just kind of move it by pressure a little bit. And it's very responsive. I mean, it's sort of like a T-38, but without, you know, the control inputs. You just kind of feel how it's going. Yeah. Well, that's exactly the opposite. I mean, it's a very poor preparation for flying a U-2 because, you know, U-2, you got that big yoke and you're moving it a lot, like all the way around, spinning it upside down almost. So, and the airplane's not really moving when you do that. It just kind of <laughs> sits there like a big horse, you know. So that was that was definitely quite an experience. I got out of that airplane after what the two hour interview flight with uh pretty sure I was flying with Cabby. Okay, John Cabigas. You know, he's like he I made him work for his money that day. 
mainly mainly coming down final just being out of sync with the airplane like we'd be go drifting to the right and i do a little left and by the time i i didn't realize i had to make you know such stabby quick movements and and correct to stop the roll i would be like going the other way so it was just like looked like a drunk sailor driving down final with that airplane yeah it's a it's a beast it's crazy yeah, I mean, totally different experience yeah. all the way around from is like a the mirror image of flying a fighter, you know. In this case, the F-16 was pretty easy to fly. It was just the employment and the tactics were difficult. And the U-2, it was like there wasn't a, a lot to the tactics and employment per se as a pilot. There was it was mostly just flying the airplane and not breaking the airplane. Yeah. You know, I've always kind of appreciated a challenge, and it was a challenge, and I, lo- I love the uniqueness of the whole program and the history of it. It wasn't flying F-16s, but it was fulfilling in a lot of other ways. And I always tell people the actual flying of it actually prepared me pretty well for what I'm doing now, and we can get to that later if you like. But Well, let's just get into it. I mean, so mm-hmm. flying the U-2, it's, um, I imagine there are a lot of parallels from there also in helping you do your job now. Just the controls of the airplane, like in the, not up high, but down low in the pattern, flying a pattern in the U-2 where energy management is paramount, especially on, say, a no-flap uh, yeah. um, landing where you you have no drag devices. So your only real control, you're in idle power, is pitch control. And you're kind of constantly pushing that uh, lift over drag curve, trying to stay efficient and then maybe go behind, you know, get behind on the curve a little bit to really up that induced drag on the wing. And it's a very fine balance, as you know, but you're just kind of, you really feel in the airplane out. And that's pretty much what we do now that I'm flying the, the Grumman S2 air tanker. Um, when we're going in for a drop, especially on drops that are in steep canyons, we need to really control our airspeed because we don't want to get too fast. So, and it's got a long high aspect ratio wing, actually pretty similar to the U2s. And so it's amazingly how well that works to like, almost the same technique as far as far as getting a little bit into that the backside and then the hmm. bottom starts dropping out and you're just kind of like you're just riding that you know it's very very similar in that case i mean there's a lot more going on but because now i have you know props that are also helping me with drag and all that but it's still pretty similar so so in the s2 are you the only one in the aircraft correct yeah we fly single pilot okay are you um now talking to the guys like in uh and what you used to do kind of the mission commander ones are you talking to someone yeah. in the that's in an airborne or on the ground or both both scenarios are different there's kind of two worlds there's the um the federal side which is forest service and blm and then i right now i'm working on this you know for cal fire on the state side and it's a little different mission sets i guess because the the federal sides are are land management agencies so they and their fires are typically more remote Whereas Cal Fire I work for now is a fire department and our fires are typically on private property or state property and threatening homes usually right away. So there's a little different mindset going into that, but the tactics and stuff are generally the same. But there's the air attack platform, which I previously described, which is aerial supervision. And that's typically a twin turbop airplane of some sort. There are some variations on that. It started out years ago. They were just flying like 182s and stuff, but it's... It's really up the game for speed and endurance and performance, especially with the pressurized cabins for the on the Fed side, especially in Idaho here. So many of the fires are up at you know eight ten thousand feet. So you're you need that pressurization. But and then you have the other assets, the the rotors, which is pretty 
self-explanatory, you know, dip in water. And then you have the fed air tankers are typically a contractor and they're all privately owned airplanes. And those guys are based all over and they, they kind of flow all over the place where the threat is at any given point. So like, you know, if it's raining here in Idaho, they might, this time of year, they're mostly down in Arizona and New Mexico because that's where the seasons start. And they'll kind of float around. And then at the end of the year, they'll all kind of end up in California because that's the that's where everything kind of ends at. The state kind of has their own resources, and we have our own air tankers there, too. On the Fed side, you get um, you might you sit around at a base, and they'll come and give you a piece of paper and say, hey, you got a new fire at these coordinates. And you'll go out the airplane, you and the air attack, and you'll sit in there and... Uh, you know, you'll fly to the fire. There's frequencies. You got air to ground frequencies, air to air frequencies, and you kind of set up and establish and determine what resources might be needed and then kind of call those in like um, a large air tankers. Those are like the C-130s and the 737s and the BAC-146s, those guys. And then uh, you just kind of run the fire from there, depending on on what the threat is. On the state side, like for what I'm doing right now, they kind of, depending on where things are, as soon as we get a smoke report, they're going to set out a pre, like a pre-established dispatch. Like, you know, we get it in our our unit there, somebody will call in a vegetation fire and they're going to send out, um, we have an air attack and two air tankers and then a helicopter. So that's typically the normal response for us. And so as an air tanker pilot now, I'm usually second or third out. We follow the air attack in the state there. They fly the OV-10. And so we're all kind of on the same frequencies. We use an FM frequency. We call it air tactics. And we kind of everything's already pretty lined out as far as our procedures. We have standards and we just follow those. But I'm talking to, in most cases, it's the fire captain or battalion chief at the air attack base who sits in the back of the OV-10. We just show up. We tell them when we're on scene. And then if they want us to drop, they'll start discussing the the drop that they want. There's a lot of coordination involved, sounds like. And if you drop, can you only drop once? Do you drop the whole load and then you have to go back and refill? Uh, we can do split loads. So the drop system, it's a computer controlled hydraulically operated doors. We set it to where it basically our finger is like is controlling it. So when we push the button, it opens the doors. When we release the button, it closes the doors. You know what you want to do. You can uh, you can do shorter drops than just a full load all the time. Okay. So that that would be handy, like a spot fire. You know, we get a lightning strike. We might do three drops on one spot fire to kind of box it in. Okay. Or if you have you want to finish a retardant line, but there's a bunch of structures or something there you don't or a lake you don't want to get retardant into, you come off the button or like a freeway. That's we try to avoid hitting. <laughs> You know, yeah. with moving vehicles, it, it gets really, you know, it can get a little busy at times. But yeah, we so we pretty much control the amount that comes out. Yeah. We set what we call a coverage level, which is how much retardant is put into like a 10 square foot area, a 10 by 10 area, I guess that's 100 square feet. And that's how many gallons are per retardant or per that area. So for light fuels like grass, it's light lower. And for heavy fuels like pine trees and stuff around Grass Valley, we're going to go the heaviest we can to get it down to the floor. Okay. And then after you complete all the drops, you have to go land and then kind of get loaded back up with more? Yeah. If they expect us back, they'll tell us to go loaded return is kind of the terminology they use. Okay. And we just return back to the tanker base. For us, we can hot load. So we have pits 
like pull through pits. We pull into it and there's firefighters that man the base and they're, they're trained. So they'll have a marshaller and then we have a loader and they have a hose on wheels that they just pull up. And our fill port is actually on the back, just underneath the rudder. It used to be on the S2 where the mad boom was. I don't know if you know what a mad boom is, but no. for, for finding uh, submarines, it was like uh, the find the magnetic anomaly detector. Anyway, there was a, like a 15-foot boom that stuck out the back of the tail. Anyway, so they have the hole there and a pipe that goes up to the tank, and they just pump it in. It takes about three minutes, and we generally take about 1,000 gallons of retardant okay. per trip. It's a balance for us with the uh, fuel load and retardant because the retardant yeah. weighs about nine to 10 pounds per gallon. So that's like 10,000 pounds, you know? Yeah. So how many of those load and returns have you done in one day? Uh, my record is maybe t- 24. Wow. Okay. That's a lot. <laughs> and it just depends on the situation. And that's, that was just this summer. My previous record, I think was 19. Okay. But I had done the 19 and only like three hours of flying time. Because the fire was only three miles from the airport. But this year, it was an all-day effort. That was like seven hours of flying. Wow. Because the fire was a little farther away. Yeah, that's a lot. The threat for us is fatigue and complacency, you know, because I go do 24 landings in a day, right? And you're fatigued. So you got to really stick with your flows and doing your checklist to make sure, like, your landing gear is down or you don't forget to put your flaps the right. Or for us, the condition levers, which is putting the props into like high RPM, you know, so you don't do stupid mistakes that will kill you or, you know, or, or cause an accident, I guess. Yeah. You have to have a lot of discipline to your, your flying procedures, especially in a long yeah, day. Yeah, like that. it really is. You got to just, and it gets monotonous, you know, but you just have to. Yeah. yeah. So have you had any scary experiences? Flying fire or just in general? Well, flying fire or in general, anything that especially we can learn from. A couple stories that are probably applicable to a more general audience. I remember I was a, uh, um, I just graduated from the Air Force Academy and I was on casual status as a second lieutenant and I was attached to the um, soaring squadron there, just kind of filling in. And I had gone up and flown a, a single seat glider by myself. And in the south side of Colorado Springs is the Guard of the Gods. I was just, just uh, riding the um, thermals or. Yeah, the thermals. Sorry, I can't think of the <laughs> Was word. this a, was a, an ASK-21? Was that the glider? This was remember? a 126. 126? Oh, even smaller. Okay. Right. So that kind of, this is how I get myself in a little bit of trouble. But anyway, I'm down there. It's kind of the afternoon. Thunderstorms are building in the summer in Colorado, right? Like on the front range, like always. And I was like, oh, this is awesome. And I get down there and I turn around. And as soon as I turn around, it was like, I don't know if you've heard in the glider, but there's a variometer. The electronic ones will like give you a tone, right? You know, like gives you like a real fast beep if you're, and then just a dead. And that's what I got, like the dead constant tone. And I'm like, oh no. So I turned back towards the Air Force Academy airfield. Like I'm not a rated pilot at this point or anything. I was a second lieutenant flying with no wings. And uh, there was nowhere really to land around there except maybe some sports fields. So I was setting up for some stuff. But I just barely made it back by the skin of my teeth. Like we need to be, I think it was a thousand feet at the entry point. And I was just, I was at like 950, you know, so I knew I'd make it. That was an interesting experience um, just from a, you know, learning to not, not get yourself too far out on the end of a rope, you know, because you can just hang yourself with that. Let's explore that for a second, Bo, because sure. I, 
I started out flying gliders also, and I think there's so many valuable lessons that you learn when you're flying gliders that are just become very important uh, when you when you transition into power flight. So what are some of the things that you feel like you learned from your, your time in the gliders that really helped you in your subsequent airplanes? Airmanship in general, like learning how to be a pilot making decisions like that, you know, you know, one of the things I try, always try to pass on to my students, you know, is just being ahead of the airplane and, and making good decisions. And that's one of those types of flying where I think you need to be ahead of the the airplane, yeah. which in that case, I was not right. I, I got down to that <laughs> yeah. point, just riding high. And like, then it dawned on me, like how far away I actually was. And like, well, if I don't get, if I'm in negative lift, like I don't have the glide ratio because the 126 is like compared to most gliders, it's a flying brick. So, yeah, you know, I just that was one one spot where I, I really learned something from that. But I was very lucky to get that experience yeah. early on in my flying career. Any other um, experiences you want to share? I had another one that was kind of a um, something that always sticks. It was maybe two years into my time at Vance as a T37 instructor. We were doing student cross country so that was like you leave on a friday come back on a sunday and this was the fall after 9 11 so fall of 2001 and we were all restricted to military bases only for security reasons so however this all ended up we stopped somewhere we were going to do our night flight into um keesler air force base in gulfport mississippi yeah and we showed up there's like three or four of us in my flight i think i was the second one in and then we had enough gas to do a couple of approaches. And I was with a student that was Japanese that was there. So it was kind of a language barrier a little bit, but he was a good pilot. And we do an ILS or something. We go go around to come around for another approach. And I don't know if you've ever flown to Keesler, but it's right on the coast. So yeah, I have. We departed right and we're right off the coast, right? And it was dark, maybe a little stormy. And they held us down at like I don't know, 1500 feet or something really low. And we we're just flying out over the ocean farther and farther and farther, you know? And I was kind of <laughs> like, oh man. And you flown a T 37, it doesn't have the best instrumentation in the world. Right. Um, you know, so we're just doing this. And then, unbeknownst to me, while we're getting vectored, like four more T 37s showed up from a different base, like Columbus or something. So they got slammed with like eight people wanting to do approaches. And all men fuel, because, of course, T-37s are men fuel when you take off. But I think I, I got vectored out offshore like 20 miles. Wow. And then maybe like a 5 or 10-mile crosswind. So, I mean, that's 20 miles. And then another 20-mile, you know, we ended up on a 20-mile final. So, you're talking 20 plus 40 plus, I don't know, I probably did like 100 miles down at 2,000 feet AGL in the T-37, <laughs> burning gas like it's going out of style. and. You know, the low fuel light comes on, emergency fuel light comes on, and it's like, what are you going to do? There's not really any, like, you can't get a word in edgewise. And the guy in front of me, I found out later, he ended up shutting down an engine because he thought he was going to flame out. He was in the same boat I was. Wow. But we landed. I never put that much fuel in a T-37 before. You know, I don't remember the numbers, but just maybe 10 gallons shy of the maximum amount, you know? And so... I learned a couple things from that, you know, just the same thing, planning ahead. You never really know what's going to come up behind you to like, you think, oh, I got a clear runway. No problem, right? Weather's good. Right. Well, what happens if that runway gets shut down? You know, where's, what's my plan? And, you know, it's just, I do, I do that 
today. You know, like I go back to Grass Valley Air Attack Base. It's a single runway. If that thing gets fouled by one of our airplanes or somebody else, like I can't be coming back min fuel because I got to fly down to another 20 minutes or something to another airport. So it's it's a valuable lesson to learn in that. And maybe it was more Air Force centric, but just anything where you're part of a flying organization is always tell your boss when you do something out of the ordinary. So they're not blindsided by somebody else telling them. <laughs> And it, it wasn't me, but it was the guy who shut down his engine. He didn't, he never told anybody. And our, uh, I don't remember if it was our, I mean, it was definitely our squadron commander, but maybe even the ops group commander was not too pleased with him. So he got a lot of, uh, RSU duties for a while after that, <laughs> sitting out on the runway watching students. He got a little professional feedback. So, yeah. I mean, and I'm sure you can appreciate that from being from both sides of the, yeah, um, yeah, absolutely. On that one. <laughs> Yeah. But I think that would go for any professional flying group, you know, just always tell your bosses what's if you screw something up or something unusual happens. Well, we all screw stuff up. So, but we, right. it's just a matter of what you learn from it. So, and sharing those lessons right. with others, I think is important. All right. If you could fly any airplane, Bo, what would it be? I think it would be the A-10 just because I've always wanted to fly it. Yeah. Every time I see one, I'm like, man, I'd really like to hop in that and go shoot the gun. I was wondering if there's any A-10 pilots out at Gowan that would uh, trade you for a day. They can go attack some fires and you can fly their, <laughs> their A-10. <laughs> yeah, probably. <laughs> I had a, actually one of the guys I worked with was an A-10 pilot. He started a year ahead of me and uh, we were based together for a couple of years. And so it was great talking to him, you know, and it's a little bit different mission, but uh, same type of attitude, you know, yeah. like, yeah. So. Okay. We're going to end this with some uh, rapid fire questions. So I'm going to read you a list of a couple of things and you just tell me which one you like better. Okay. Zoo or amusement park? Amusement park. Camaro or Mustang? Mustang. Spitfire or Messerschmitt? Spitfire. Would you rather do a circling approach or an IFR to minimums? Mm, circling approach. Would you rather fly into a sunrise or a sunset? Sunset. Did you like ground attack or air to air better? Ground attack. When you're flying U2s, did you like the chocolate pudding or the apple pie? Apple pie. <laughs> Would you rather do a backcountry landing or land on water? Backcountry. ILS or an RNAV approach? ILS. I agree. ILS. So much easier. <laughs> a tailwheel or conventional? Ooh, I guess conventional. Okay, very good. Hey, Bo, I really appreciate it. Great talking with you again. Thanks for being a Pilot's Paradise podcast. And uh, we'll wrap this up. Thank you very much. Thanks for having me. Thanks for listening to the Pilot's Paradise podcast. Subscribe and tune in next week for another episode.